0: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'm talking to the author of Revolving Door Lobbying, Public Service, Private Influence, and the Unequal Representation of Interests. The book is published by Timothy LaPira and Herschel Thomas. I'm talking with Tim LaPira now. Tim, how are you doing?
1: Good. How are you, Heath? Yeah,
0: I'm doing great. I um, have, uh, for at least, I don't know, two years on occasion asked you, is the book ready? Is the book ready? Can I read the book? And you keep, you kept saying, no, the book, we just need a little more time, a little more time. Um, the book is now out. Congratulations. Um, the book is great and, and must feel so great to have gone through all of that and, and gotten the book out. Thank you. Book, Thank you. Yeah. Before we start talking about the book, maybe you can very briefly introduce yourself and, and also your co-author.
1: Sure. Uh, I'm Tim LaPira. I am an associate professor of political science at James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia. My co-author is Herschel Thomas, or otherwise better known as Trey Thomas. Um, he is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Texas at Arlington.
0: Yeah, the um, the the uh, book, is, as I mentioned, you guys have been working on for a while, and Um, You've produced such a comprehensive look at at a really timely, timely issue. Um, Before we get to all of the great data and all the great analysis, um, in in one of the uh, first chapters, maybe it's chapter two, you present um, two ways of thinking about lobbyists, um, two archetypes, Mm -hmm. uh, the the kingpin and the librarian. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you start us out by talking about these two? Uh, what they're known for, and and how they help you to conceptualize the world of DC lobbying.
1: Sure. Um, well, it turns out that these are two of dozens of lobbyists that we interviewed in person in the course of of writing this book, and it as it turned out, they just seemed to be such a, a perfect, as you say, archetypes, but perfect examples of the different kinds of of lobbyists that populate washington dc and one of the things that we're trying to do with this book is not just explore the so-called revolving door phenomenon but really dig deep into looking at important differences between different kinds of lobbyists and these two uh, after having interviewed them uh, i'm just seem to perfectly represent What we thought of as polar opposites, right? They—they're not necessarily—they do not necessarily represent all lobbyists, but they help us tell our story. So, the what we call the K Street kingpin is a a well-known lobbyist. Of course, my IRB protocols—I can't share uh, their identities. Uh, um, He's a well-known lobbyist who's been in the in the profession for decades. And he is the head of a lobbying shop at a major uh, lobbying and law firm in Washington, D.C. with a with a big brand name and a list of clients uh, longer than my arm. And uh, um, he's really quite a fascinating guy. I, I, I sat with him for about an hour and, and uh, um, it, it, his, his assistant had to pull him away it, that he kept wanting to sort of talk about his past. He, he worked for a, a, a United States senator um, back in the 80s and then went out into the lobbying profession when, in, in his words, was relatively underdeveloped. Um, and he just sort of told me the story about how it all works and what, what it was that he brought to the table. And, and uh, um, in his own description, he said what he knows best is not necessarily policy. He is not uh, necessarily a wonk. You know, he, he threw in the caveat, and I think rightfully so, that he does know things about major public policies, certainly more than the average citizen. But he said his real advantage was that he knew how things really worked behind the scenes, and that he knew how uh, uh, Congress operated and really what the process was outside of, say, the t- typical textbook version of how a bill becomes a law. So what he knows is what kind of conversations happen when, uh, at the time, say, when an idea is going from a sort of very vague idea into a bill and looking out to build you know, supportive coalitions. Or he knows what the meetings are like behind the scenes when uh, uh, Senate party leaders are trying to strategize how to go about bringing a bill to the floor and, and so forth and so on. So what, what he was really describing was that his value and his expertise is this really uh, a a strong insight into this otherwise opaque process that even many of us political scientists don't often know from an experienced perspective about how things really, really work. And what he could do is share that insight to clients to help them react or develop uh, their own political and policy strategies. So the K Street Kingpin is this sort of big name guy who probably makes uh, a a good chunk of change Uh, working for a major, major lobbying firm who we juxtaposed with another lobbyist I interviewed who had no experience on Capitol Hill. Had uh, had really only worked in Washington for a handful of years. She's a relatively junior lobbyist in a trade association or a professional society of librarians, and we call her the librarian, it was sort of jokingly, because she's not actually a librarian. She has her master's degree in information science, and worked uh, in a in a small state-based think tank on uh, a sort of e-commerce issues, and she was recruited by her association in Washington uh, to, to sort of work on these issues on their behalf at the, at the federal level. And that's really all she worked on was so-called e-commerce, which I'll be honest, I don't really know the ins and outs of e-commerce. But if you want to know the ins and outs of e-commerce, this is the person that you call. Right. So she worked for a library as, a, as an interest in uh, their, 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 their member associations, member libraries, member librarians, are, uh, you know, work on e-commerce as one of the many services they provide to their clients. Um, and uh, she's really the, the the person in Washington to go to to know what libraries think about how uh, the federal government regulates e-commerce. And and this is often times the ways in which state governments and local governments, uh, you know, provide services to their uh, citizens, like how to pay taxes online, or how to, uh, you know, how to get, uh, you know, file for a, a variance in their homeown, uh, you know, for construction or something like that. These are all the kinds of things that run uh, that that are involved in e-commerce and in many obscure ways. Some of the things that the federal government does touches on these items. And here she is, she, she uh, relative to the the case three kingpin. She doesn't make a lot of money. She's not really interested in making a lot of money. Of course, she's she's uh, 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 you know uh, comfortable in, in her position, but she works for a nonprofit organization. Uh, she only has one client, her employer, and she only works on uh, um, maybe one or two issues on a regular basis, and that's really the scope of her expertise. So she represents the kind of lobbyist to, to us when we were writing. She really represents the kind of lobbyist who is the policy wonk, the policy expert, the type of person that members of Congress, folks in the White House, that they're really going to need to rely on to get good, credible information when they're considering any kind of policy change or or to make some kind of policy decision. So these two lobbyists, the the sort of uh, uh, process-oriented K Street Kingpin versus the real substantive policy expert the librarian, helped us sort of develop our story about why understanding many of the subtle differences between lobbyists might help us political scientists uh, uh, understand how lobbying and uh, actually works and how interests get represented in Washington.
0: Now, one of the things, one of the points that you make in the book is that, that each of these uh, individuals offers a type of insurance to their employer. Mm-hmm. Um, and their employers are different. Now, what do you mean by lobbying as a type of political insurance? This is a, a different approach than, um, than others have taken, and, and many, um, maybe those that, that don't study this intently, would, would typically associate with what lobbying is all about. So talk, talk a little bit about, about that idea in the book.
1: Sure. Well, when we read the literature, we, we basically see a... a um, the, the, the dominant framework to explain things like why do lobbyists exist? Why do organized interests spend so much money on hiring lobbyists to do their bidding in Washington? The, 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 the sort of dominant story tends to be or tends to explicitly or usually implicitly assume that when an organized interest, whether it's a major corporation or a citizen group or some uh, association of professionals or whatnot, when they spend money, that it's some kind of investment that they're presuming that that investment is going to give them a return, that return coming from government or some kind of policy action that uh, the government might do. Oftentimes, that return is, uh, comes from making the government not do anything. Right? We, there's a well-known status quo bias in the, in the policy process. And it sort of uh, presented a puzzle for us because we were curious about why would uh, uh, organized interests that know their business uh, better than anybody, uh, um, why would they keep spending money dollar after dollar after dollar when we have a government that just about anybody might point out is as dysfunctional as it's ever been? It's not doing anything, right? So um, why not hold on to your money and wait till the government actually you know, does something and then starts spending. It seems like, from that perspective of an investment, uh, um, that it was really just irrational, illogical that uh, um, the, the amount of money being spent in politics has been going up and up and up. So we, our perspective was to think about lobbying and lobbying services being a kind of political insurance, right? And, and here we're, of course, using a metaphor. We don't really mean. Actual insurance, where you know a group will be identified for if something if the government does something bad, right? But it was a useful uh, analogy for us because just like on my own homeowners insurance, I pay every month in order to maintain coverage, whether I use it that month or not. And we thought of lobbyists as being very in a very similar position to organized interests outside of Washington that. They're worth paying for on a month to month basis, uh, whether you use them or not, uh, um, because at any point in time, um, a a politically motivated member of Congress might all of a sudden decide to write a bill that might impact their industry or impact their interest in, in some way. And it doesn't really do you any good to hire a lobbyist after the fact, just like it wouldn't do you any good to buy insurance after a hurricane hit your house. Right, so it, it, by using this theoretical analogy, we try to change the perspective on thinking about what lobbying is, and by uh, but by thinking about lobbying as political insurance, it makes a little bit more sense why why organized interests would continuously spend money and continuously spend more and more money. So if uh, on, on actual lobbying activities, so if that's the case, that led us to ask the question: Then, well, what kind of insurance or what kind of coverage are lobbyists giving their clients? And in in that uh, uh, by, by looking at it that way, we basically came up with with two different uh, uh, two main things that we think lobbyists quote unquote cover by giving their insurance. The first being uh, a policy process knowledge lobbyists in Washington know a little bit more about uh, what's going on inside the government and uh, um, to to help their clients try to minimize the uncertainty about what the government may or may not do in the next month, in the next six months, throughout this Congress, what what have you. That was one thing that that lobbyists, uh, one one sort of uh, uh, coverage that lobbyists can provide that others can't. And then two, uh, lobbyists know uh, uh, the ins and outs of, of public policies that uh, those outside of Washington may not know, right? So you might, uh, a Silicon Valley company might know a whole lot about electric enge- electronic engineering and, and, and software development and so forth and so on, but they probably know very little about how uh, uh, um, you know telecommunication policy might impact, say, a new business venture that they're coming up with. So where do you go? You turn to a lobbyist who uh, who has that political or that policy uh, expertise to give you advice. So these two different uh, risks that we say: one, the government acting on your industry; and two, the government uh, 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 doing something uh, 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 that might impact your your line of business without you understanding how that's going to uh, affect you. Are the two risks that. Uh, uh, two main risks that we think lobbyists tend to cover. And it just so happens that that we think that those risks map pretty well, uh, getting back to your previous question on our archetype of lobbyists, that the political uncertainty risk is covered better by hiring somebody like the K Street Kingpin, whereas uh, uh, the policy uh, a substance risk uh, is much better covered by somebody like the Librarian.
0: Now, this idea that the lobbyists sort of fall into some different categories doesn't suggest that all lobbyists are created equally. Um, and and much of the motivation of the book, we really can find in the first figure that you present. Mm-hmm. Um, figure 1.1 1. 1 on page 9 um, shows a trend over time. Uh, would you briefly explain to the audience that can't see the figure Mm-hmm. Uh, what is going on there, and and sort of what it, what it says about the the direction of of uh, lobbying over this time period?
1: Yeah, uh, well, so in in the first chapter, more generally and and specifically in this this figure, we're simply trying to document that the uh, uh, the phenomenon of the so-called revolving door has become more important over time, and this is something that. We didn't really have to go far to, to sort of uh, uh, intuitively understand that the idea of people who had worked in government in public service at one point in time, then become then uh, at a later point in, in their career, go out into uh, the private sector uh, to, to be lobbyists, that this has become in- increasing over time simply by just observing how much we talk about it and how much we hear about, about this problem. We hear about it these days, but it wasn't really a problem at all back in the 70s or, or 80s, or it didn't really even exist. Whether or not it's a problem, we can, we can put a pin in that and get to it later. Uh, um, so we relied on uh, uh, some very good uh, uh, political science colleagues uh, who've done some similar work trying to document this, this over time. And uh, uh, what these figures are, are, are demonstrating the best we can from the, the data that are available, simply showing how common it is uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. This figure one one was the former members of Congress. That's right. That, that uh, um, uh, showing that when members of Congress leave office for whatever reason, getting unelected or or, or or just simply retiring and moving on, that it was extremely rare back in the '70s and the '80s for uh, members of Congress to keep a residence in Washington after the fact and. Uh, go to work for a public relations or a lobbying firm or a law firm in, in town uh, uh, and, and continue to, to stay with it. It used to be the case that they would go back home, quite literally retire, or maybe hang single and, and work in law or work in whatever their, their uh, uh, chosen profession was back in their state or their district. Well, uh, um, they tracked this over the time and, and, and showed that it was becoming much more common, that it was uh, uh, it was fewer than five percent of members of Congress back in the 70s. Uh, uh, did it in, in in more recent years? Uh, um, it's approaching uh, uh, about half, or, or just over 40 percent of senators and representatives uh, um, continued in some kind of field that would would uh, we might call the, the revolving door. In the next figure I, I, we show a, a similar. A trend, but we expand that beyond just former members of Congress. We're looking at all folks who worked in uh, in, in Congress or the White House or, or a government agency. But in this in this uh, uh, figure, we're looking just at uh, um, data we obtained from lobbying disclosure reports, which only go back in time to 1999. Uh, um, the, the law. It wasn't in effect until the mid '90s, and data really didn't reliable data didn't become available for a few years. If we look at that, we look at the trend, and not just members of Congress, which have been, uh, the, the, the number of members of Congress who have gone through the revolving door, but an even sharper rise among, especially congressional staff. That uh, starting in the late '90s, there has just been an explosion in the number of of congressional staff who've gone through the revolving door to, to become lobbyists. So here we're documenting in a number of different ways, really what we call the problem of, or or, or what uh, what the the phenomenon is, um, to show that there has been uh, over the past thirty years uh, a a sharp increase in the number of former members of Congress, or congressional staff, or White House staff, uh, who have um, uh, who have gone through uh, the the revolving door.
0: Now it seems intuitively uh, the case that hiring a former member of Congress would make more sense than hiring a former staff person. But you actually show kind of the, the magnitude of this difference and and how much additional revenue uh, hiring a former member of Congress, somebody uh, going through the revolving door, compared to a former congressional staffer mm-hmm. or even someone with no congressional experience at all. The librarian you mentioned earlier might fit into that category. Mm-hmm. So how big are the differences in terms of how much revenue can be generated by the firm uh, uh, based on hiring each of these different types of people? Is this a, a little difference or a big difference?
1: It's, it's quite a big difference. So um, the, 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 the data that we use, the data we do that in, in our study that we mostly rely on are from lobbying disclosure reports. And for, with some quirks in how the Lobbying Disclosure Act works, that I'm not going to uh, bore your listeners with now, can only really look at revenue generated by contract lobbyists. So these are lobbyists who work at a lobbying firm and most likely have multiple clients, or at least the firm has multiple clients. Um, and what we were able to do is calculate the per lobbyist revenue generated in uh, uh, the one year that we we're really closely looking, looking at, at these folks. And uh, um, what we find out, is is pretty telling. First and foremost, uh, and and probably the the most important difference is between a lobbyist with any kind of government experience whatsoever and lobbyists who had no government experience. uh, The difference is astounding. Uh, um, uh, uh, Lobbyists who've gone through the revolving door on average are going to make about uh, uh, three times what a a lobbyist who had no government experience uh, uh, would make, demonstrating that they're the market definitely sees uh, the value of a lobbyist who has had this government experience. Um, and in our terms, we interpret that to mean that uh, in these days of, of government dysfunction and what is often perceived as inaction, that there is a hunger in, uh, for, uh, uh, for organizations to, to be sort of covered uh, by that uh, political uncertainty risk. And, um, but not only that. What the what the data also show us is that even among those revolving door lobbyists, that uh, the revenue maps pretty well on what we might intuitively think of as uh, the pecking order of of government jobs. Right at the low end is going to be somebody who works perhaps in a in a member of Congress's office in their personal office in Washington, um, who's going to make a a, 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 a You know, a certain level, but as you go up uh, uh, this pecking order on Capitol Hill or in Washington to having held a a job in a congressional committee or in party leadership or in the White House, they're getting uh, increasingly more valuable. And at the peak here, perhaps not surprisingly, are former members of Congress themselves. Now, former members of Congress only represent about one percent of the total lobbyist population. Uh, um, but as we might expect, they're at the tip of the pyramid. So they're, they're really going to be making the most. And, and that fits with our story in, in that members of Congress have been on the floor. They've been in the cloakroom. They've been in, uh, their, their party's caucus meetings where, uh, uh, you know, uh, strategies and political opinions have been hashed out among their own colleagues. Um, and for those of us who worked on the Hill, we sort of know that the member is, is the peak, Member is a uh, uh, member level communication is really the most important, and it goes down from there, and we see that mapping on, on pretty well to uh, uh, the 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 average per lobbyist revenue uh, in in the lobbying community. So it tells us that one, the revolving door is certainly valuable, and two, the the particular kinds of experience that uh, the lobbyist had in government is going to explain a lot about. Uh, uh, just how valuable they 're perceived by organized interests
0: now these differences that you described get to the some of the individual returns to lobbyists and and maybe there 's something um, unseemly about this, um, but what about the larger issues related to lobbying uh, in the subtitle of the book, you allude to the importance of this. Um, uh, in what sense is this related to the unequal representation of interest that you mentioned in your subtitle? And and how does movement in and out of government relate to concerns about equality and, and representation and, and larger democratic concerns?
1: Well, I, I think uh, the the first part of the subtitle that I would point to would be the public service and private in, influence part. That really what we're documenting here is a change in uh, our, our sort of political, cultural understanding about doing political or work, right? Um, it used to be, you know, we, we might fawn about uh, times past where it was an honorable thing to go into public service and government service, right? We, you might spend a career being a bureaucrat. You might spend 35 years of your life working in a mid-level congressional position and, and certainly have a lot to show for it. And what I think at least we're partly documenting is the trend away from that? That the incentives of work in Washington D.C. now makes it uh, 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 there's such a strong pull of people of people to continue their careers outside of government in the private sector because they can just make so much more money. And and on top of that, when we talked to many lobbyists about this, they told us that it's not just the money, but it's also that they have a lot more control. Over their their work life balance and uh, and what it is that they do, they can focus on issues that they're interested in, um, and they're no longer just sort of working for a president or working for a senator, uh, uh, um, where where they they work in relative anonymity, um, and lobbying and the lobbying profession offers uh, uh, that along with a, a much larger salary, um, but the, the the final part is really. Uh, 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 we think is is really the most important part of the book. I mean, it would be one thing that we've uh, uh, crunched all the numbers looking at lobbyists and what it is that they do. But when we take a step back and we try to think about, well, what does this really, really mean? We need to recognize, we think, and, and based on the literature that lobbyists aren't going anywhere. And frankly, we don't want lobbyists to go anywhere. We want Interest groups to to, uh, uh, to offer a, a, a robust system of of information and expertise that the government can use to do its job uh, uh, and be responsive to uh, to to the citizens like uh, we would expect in, in a democracy and frankly lobbies play an important role in that um, they 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 offer good information they offer at least the opportunity. Uh, to improve the quality of deliberations inside Congress and, and the the other policy making mechanisms inside our government. But it becomes a problem when lobbyists who have government experience, when their, their expertise and their process knowledge about how things go on in, in government have become so valuable in the market that only the most uh, 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 of you know, well-positioned, organized interests uh, can afford them, right? Um, so we've long known, going back to uh, uh, E. Setschneider in, in the middle of the 20th century, that, that the interest group system sings with a, 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 an upper-class accent. Well, we think that, I- if anything, this, this new and emerging system of valuing lobbyists based on the kinds of government experience they had is only really exacerbating that what I mean by that is only the largest corporations and private interests can afford the K street kingpin. Right. But when, uh, uh, when, when there's going to be relatively fewer and fewer organizations out there that are going to be willing to pay somebody like the librarian that can offer that uh, information and expertise. So in, in a, in, in a political era where we have this uh, uh, extreme partisan competition and uh, a decreasing levels of uh, of knowledge and expertise inside government, the uh, the price for a well placed lobbyist is becoming uh, is really pricing the the average interest or, or, or typical organized interest out of the market. So, how this really manifests itself to to the unequal representation of interest. Is that um, not only do uh, you know uh, corporate and well uh, well endowed interests uh, uh, have an advantage that they've always had? It seems that like that inequality is is growing, growing even more in, in this new world of revolving door lobbying.
0: Yeah, the, the book again is revolving door lobbying, public service, private influence, and the unequal representation of interests. Uh, the book is published by university press of kansas the author who you've been uh hearing from is tim lapira his co-author herschel or trey thomas he wasn't able to join us today but, but contributed greatly to the book tim thank you so much for your time today
1: thank you Heath. it was fun